Hi, and welcome to Stand Partners for Life. This is episode one. We're so glad to have you here. I'm Nathan Cole. I'm Akiko Taramoto. And if you're wondering what that music was, the intro music, that was written by our good friend and former colleague, Max Ramey. Um, It's called Six Violin Canons, six short pieces for two violins, and he wrote them for us when we left the Chicago Symphony six years ago, and we are so happy to finally be able to put at least a little bit of those six violin canons out on the air. So thank you so much, Max, great violist, member of the Chicago Symphony, and a true friend. This is the show that gives you the secrets of the symphony from two violinists who live together work together, and play together. Thank you so much. A number of you have already written in and let us know what you'd like to hear about, what topics you'd like us to cover, and how you'd like us to cover them. And I love that. I want you to keep writing in with your suggestions. Just go to standpartnersforlife.com. Give us your thoughts about the show. We love hearing from you. And so uh, what are we doing here right now? We're at Walt Disney Concert Hall in LA. Uh, We're getting ready to play a chamber concert with uh, Martin Furst. I I don't really know how to say his name properly. He's a Swedish, right? It's O with those two. uh, Does it have the the dots over it? Yes. All right, Martin Furst. Anyway, brilliant clarinetist. And uh, yeah, it's a bit of a rare chance for us to play some chamber music during the symphony season. Uh, So string quartet plus clarinet, the great, great one by Mozart. So that'll be in a couple hours and... So it's a great chance for us to sit down for this episode. Um, did you did you always know that you were going to be playing in a symphony orchestra when you grew up? I actually did know that. I I enjoyed playing in my uh, my youth orchestra, which was actually the pre college division at Juilliard Orchestra. Um, but I remember just from the very first time I sat down to play in a large group, I enjoyed the feeling of of making this great sound together and having a little less pressure on you as an individual it really resonated with me right away yeah it's funny i i disliked it at first just because i was so weak at reading music and so it just it felt like a constant i was always behind and never doing the right thing and always missing something like i'd play the right notes but it, i'd play them loud when it was supposed to be really quiet and well, it might be an exaggeration to say I liked it right away. I do remember getting <laughs> yelled at and being very uncomfortable at Manhattan School in the orchestra I was playing. And um, it was Jonathan Strasser was conducting, and I had never heard the expression. Well, he he made us play individually in front of everyone, which oh, wow. is an experience I think we've all had at some point, which is why why there are unions now. <laughs> but um, he he did that and one, one, one by one and. When he got to me, he said, okay, but good, but no cigar. And okay. I, I was six, no, I was seven years old, so I had never heard that expression. And I had no idea what he meant. I got the feeling, obviously, he wasn't particularly impressed. Did you go home and tell your parents, ask them what it meant? I did. They burst out laughing. <laughs> and I never forgot that that happened. So yeah, maybe after this point is when I got more comfortable playing in an orchestra setting and decided that I wanted to do it for the rest of my life. Well, so here we are, our actual titles with the orchestra. I am first associate concertmaster, which is another way of saying second chair violin, 
you want to give your title? I'm assistant concertmaster, which is another way of saying fourth chair. And so what about the stand partners? Are, are we technically stand partners? No, I, I guess we're sort of pulling off kind of a hoax here. Yeah, I, we do. So stand partners in a literal sense are just, they're the people that sit next to each other. I guess it really only applies to the string sections because in the woodwinds and brass and percussion, every each player has his or her own stand. But in the strings we share, and so the two people sharing a stand are the stand partners, which we do sometimes depending on who's present and who's absent. But even when we're not sitting right next to each other, I mean, the furthest away we are is just one stand or just a, a few feet. So on a, in a normal setup where, of course, he's number two and I'm number four, so I'm just a few inches away from my husband at all times. Breathing down my neck. I guess I knew, or I had a pretty good idea maybe when I was 14 or 15, and we'll get into more about you, more about me in, in the next couple of episodes, but I, I came from a musical family and and you didn't. Well, they I mean, they're, they're musical in the sense that they love music, but they didn't perform it professionally, which a lot of people in my family did. So I had a grandfather that was a flutist in the Philadelphia Orchestra and both my parents were professional flutists. So I think by the time I was 14 or 15, I had a good idea that I was going to play in an orchestra, but I, I didn't really know what that meant beyond, like you said, doing the youth orchestras. And um, so when it finally happened, I, I mean, I was thrilled because in a sense, I thought it's what I was supposed to be doing, but I, I also wondered what happens now and is this going to be it or... So, you know, at, we, at what age were you wondering? Is this well, it? when I got my first job, so when I was 22, that was with the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra. I thought, okay, well, so now I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. So I hope it's really good and fun. <laughs> and I didn't know. So what, you know, for folks who don't play in orchestras right now, you know, why do we do it? What are the, what are the best parts of the job? The best parts of the job are... Well, let's start with a very practical sense. You you know what your schedule is going to be for a year in advance. Say you you can really plan your life. You know your kids, your family. You can you can take care of that stuff because you know exactly where you're going to be pretty much at all times. Right, as opposed to musicians who, you know, because of their choice or other circumstances, they're working. You know, maybe on a weekly or monthly basis. Right, or a soloist who's traveling a lot. Um, right. They, they may know where they're going to be, but it's going to be a lot of of airplanes and you know cars, buses, whatever it's going to be. It's it's uh, You won't be at home with your family for for large periods of time. Right, so... So we have that stability. advantage. Um, what, are, what else is great about it? Um, we get to be making music with the greatest artists in the world. Yeah, which is soloists kind of an incredible and thing. conductors and, and colleagues. They're the ones we see on a daily basis, so the ones you see the most, you uh, <laughs> those are the easiest take, to take get on your nerves. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a whole other episode. Maybe maybe several episodes. <laughs> in fact, that could be the whole show, but... Yeah. <laughs> we still want to keep working colleagues. here while we do the podcast, so... But yeah, soloists, conductors, those are the people who change week in and week out. And yeah, whether it's, you know, here in L.A. or 
where we were both in the Chicago Symphony before, we, we definitely get to see who's out there worldwide. That's always exciting. The music, of course. I mean, when I got older and sort of lost some of my fear about just reading the notes and playing in the groups, I got more the experience you were talking about, just making that big sound with so many people working together. And there, I used to love, and I still love playing string quartets. I used to only love playing string quartets. And then I realized, yeah, these same composers wrote some of their best music for the big orchestra effects and sounds that you can only get with that many people working together. So when we get to experience that each week, that's a really powerful thing that, that I would certainly miss if I, if I weren't doing it all the time. I think uh, the social aspect is something also that um, you experience when you're young and it kind of sticks with you as you get older. You, you enjoy even as much as some of your colleagues aren't going to be your favorite people in the whole world. There's a, it's its own little ecosystem, I guess. It's its own world that you you kind of get addicted to, to being in that world, which is why so many of us end up married to other musicians. Right. Not always the same instrument as in our case, but uh, yeah, we I mean, we've always noticed that since college, musicians often date musicians. And I mean, sometimes that's because of the understanding, right? I mean, it, it can be hard to understand putting yourself through the bad parts, which we're just going to talk about. Um, yeah, putting yourself through through it with uh, not so much guarantee that things are going to work out. Um, all the while, people are telling you you're lucky to be doing what you love. And we do feel lucky. But then there are those times we don't. Um, what are some of the... There's a this matter of your schedule. You get out after a concert and you're, you know, you're kind of riding this high. Like that was really fun. And, and you end up socializing with the very people you're working with. And that, that lasts. This is still time. part of the good, the good part. This is the good part. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and what about those things that we look down on sometimes and those who aren't in orchestras look down on, you know, maybe uh, stops them from wanting to get into the game. I mean, I would say that schedule can, is definitely a double-edged sword, right? You know, each week can start to feel the same hauling into the same workplace. You're playing different music each week, but you know, it weeks can slip by and years can slip by and you can sometimes wonder what you're doing. If you're changing as a person or an artist when you're just part of this big machine. Yeah. I think the fact that you can go a long time, not hearing your own sound, your job is as a section player anyway, or as a, as one of the string musicians certainly is that you are not supposed to hear yourself ever by yourself at work. Obviously, otherwise you're doing it wrong, as they say. Yeah, that that is a big difference. I mean, and that's often why woodwind brass percussion players, their dream from the time they enter music school is to get into an orchestra for many of them. And when I was first in school, I, I couldn't really understand that until I joined orchestras and saw how free, how much freedom there was in their lines and uh, just how big of a difference it was for them to play solo lines as opposed to fitting in as a section of, in our case, 16. And for violas, cellos, basses, it could be anywhere from 8 to 14. Well, it's as they used to say in Chicago that that Sir George Schulte referred to the strings as the bed of rice. The bed of rice. And uh, we're hoping that was not, there was no uh, 
racial element to that comment. That's right. I think yeah, I think the demographics were still different back in those days. Yeah, probably at that time it was not. Didn't seem like a loaded comment, but nevertheless, I do think of that uh, when when the winds and brass they play their solos, they stand for their bows, and then then we stand, and it's like yeah, we, you know we. There wouldn't be a meal without us, but to say that not we're the, the glory, <laughs> to say that we're the most important part of the meal would probably be not entirely true either. So, and that is to a certain extent why we are here in LA, not leading the section all the time. Although in as second chair, I'll often slide over to first chair when uh, our concert master is not there. So I will lead the section sometimes. But even though our week-in, week-out job is not actually leading. We are close enough to the front that, you know, I feel more a sense of responsibility and, you know, more excitement than I did when I was in the section. But that depends on people's personality, too. It depends on how you want to be spending your time in the orchestra. But yeah, certainly playing in the section all the time, as you, the first thing you said was you don't hear your own sound for a long time, and that can hurt your playing and definitely hurt your confidence when it's time for you to to be heard in in a solo inside or outside the orchestra. Definitely, yeah. And uh, what about seeing the same people all the time and not having a choice about who you play with and what music you play? I mean, that that's a big one for me. You we we never choose our music in the orchestra. That is very tough. Though I'd like to say that we enjoy almost everything we play. I think there are definitely weeks where we you know, we're not quite sure what to make of our repertoire. And, and, but, you know, our job is to, our job, of course, is to, to produce the best we can from what we're given. Yeah. And I mean, I find uh, a lot of the time there, there will be a piece that I really hate in the beginning of the week. And, and sometimes it takes all the rehearsals and all the performances, but by the end of the week, I can say, you know, sort of, faking enjoying this for five days has actually eventually resulted in me enjoying it. <laughs> and actually, maybe that could be a, a seen as a positive. Because if I had to choose, if I could choose what I played, and, and you have your own festival, Nathan, so you have some of this experience, you get to choose what to program. In chamber music. In chamber music, which is seems amazing. But then I personally realized that I haven't really played that much and what I do want to play is isn't particularly exciting and stuff I've heard or still, you know they, oh well, I, I played this piece it's great let's do it again or, right you can um, get the echo yeah and you, you get a little bit stuck in that and, and you don't expand your horizons so I'm, I'm trying to I think there've been recently even a few pieces that we started out really not enjoying at you know in in, in our job and by the end we had come around to it and I'm trying to remember maybe some of the Icelandic festival possibly I, I don't remember the specifics but I, I really do remember that feeling like that's that's nice that I you know I, I've come to enjoy this piece and um something I wouldn't have picked out to hear or certainly to play and and now you know I, I feel like that that's opened up that part of my my mind a little bit all right. So we're we're kind of turning this into a positive, but you have to, you know, and that's that's it's relentless our job, and that's to to cite another negative. It it keeps coming and coming, and and you get breaks, but it you know there's always another week behind. We do have an artistic department, and they're the ones that pick what we play. They work with the 
music director, our music director, Gustavo Dudamel, and the various guest conductors that come in. So that that's, um, and we're going to speak with some of them later in the show, you know, how they put the season together, because that's a, such a crucial job, especially now. It used to be you could just program Beethoven and Brahms and Wagner, and everyone would buy a big subscription and fill the hall all season long. And now, you know, people, they may just choose to come to a few concerts a year and they want to pick what it is that they're going to hear. So they're only going to come to the things that they want. So yeah, I think that explains some of the bolder and weirder experiments that we do here in LA, like that big Icelandic festival last season. Or the Frank Zappa always comes to mind. Yeah, Frank Zappa with glowing sex toys waving around in the air. That 200, was... 200 motels. Yeah, that that was quite a show. That was probably the most bizarre project we've taken part in, or I, I at least part of the LA film. I mean, you've done some, some of the Green Umbrella series have interesting... Yeah, but I mean, if it hadn't been for that Frank Zappa show, so first of all, midway through the show, Akiko hears a voice that she thinks she recognizes in the, in the middle of the night you woke up. Yeah, not even and during, you... I think it was probably two weeks later, it had been bugging me this entire time. Oh, and, and then it was only after the whole thing was done, you it was realized. Done, it was he was gone, and then it suddenly popped into my brain that it was the, the Mater D from the Seinfeld B.O. episode. One of the actors in our show. In the Frank Zappa show. He was, he, well, he was the narrator? What was he? Yeah, using? he was like the MC. Yeah, he had a the, title. It was like the, the announcer or something, yeah. And just from the voice. And then also for Frank Zappa, I uh, got to meet Cameron from uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. <laughs> get a little uh, picture with him. That was awesome. So, you know, we love these uh, wacky projects that we take on here. Because <laughs> you never know which, uh, yeah, which sitcom extras you'll see. And that's true. And we, we did a children's concert where... Uh, we're always looking up the actors from the children's concert, wondering if we've seen them in something. Right. And in this particular case, we actually had seen the actress in The Wire. Yeah. She was uh, Officer Presbaluski's wife, for those of you who are avid Wire fans. And it's funny, these folks, they're, they couldn't be nicer. They're acting with the L.A. Phil and um, <laughs> it's early in the morning. If you ever do mention to any of the actors that we work with oh like i loved you in this they'll they'll often just either they'll they'll say i can't believe you remember that you know not knowing that we've watched it like 20 times in the case of seinfeld or right or or eva marie saint we got to meet her yeah which was really fun she was um she's she of course she won an oscar for on the waterfront mm -hmm. um but the movie that i've seen her the most in was north by northwest which i watched probably 30 times as a kid. And you got to tell her this. So yeah, right? I, I told her she, and she was she could not have been nicer. And how how old was she? She was mm -hmm. 91. She yeah. was 91, 92 maybe now. Well, this this has got to be another episode to um unrelated or... unmusical or extra musical celebrities that uh oh boy, we can't talk about it now. I want to hang around Disney Hall. Oh, well, what well, about Chicago? Yes, then and, and also in Stewart, Chicago, which was kind of a highlight. Patrick Stewart. That was. That was a highlight for sure. Uh, Nathan also, well, he didn't realize that his future would involve a lot of um, John Williams. But so at the time when he first met John Williams in Chicago, he got extra excited. And he had a enormous photograph taken with him. Yeah, the, the circumstances. And those were the days of film. And you took your roll of film to get prints made. And one accidentally got blown up to some 
obscene size, like 20 by 24 inches. So yeah, that picture ended up in my possession and I brought it to him to sign. So I have a huge <laughs> silver pen signed picture with John Williams. I think he was probably only a little bit afraid of Nathan when he came in with that enormous photograph. Yeah, <laughs> but he did sign it. A crazed super fan, Nathan. So, you know, these are all, this is, this is what the symphony is about. And these are definitely the, the secrets of the symphony. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about what a, what a typical week is. And anybody who, you know, those of you who play in orchestras, this is not going to be that different from what you know. But if you haven't spent a whole season playing in an orchestra, um, you may not know kind of how the rehearsals and concerts break down. Here we are on a Tuesday, and the symphony week's work hasn't begun yet. We're, pl- we're here playing this chamber music concert as part of the orchestra season. But um, we'll start rehearsing tomorrow, and I think we have three or four rehearsals maybe for the week, which is typical, only three for this coming week, Akiko says. Um we had one we snuck one in last week actually that's right so for a total of four and then three performances or four performances will be typical each of those rehearsals and performances is called a service and somewhere between seven and nine services every week whether it's rehearsals or concerts and then if we're lucky (laughs) if we're if we're lucky yeah there there are strict rules about all these things so that we uh we don't feel the Musicians don't feel overworked. Um, and sometimes we have to laugh at those rules, but uh, <laughs> we're always grateful they're there because, um, like we said, there's a toll. There's a physical toll, mental toll. If you push yourself too hard, if you get pushed too hard. Yeah, the injuries are a real thing. And especially by the end of the season, uh, I would say, I mean, you've really got to watch out if if there's a... It's like the NFL. Yeah, exactly. What's your Shoot ourselves look like full by of the end? horse 16? tranquilizers and get back on the stage. <laughs> um, yeah, no concussion protocols yet. But no, I, I, by the end of the season, there will be a deceptive week that might sneak up on you, like a Vivaldi week or a Schubert week or something like that. Something that sounds kind of light, but is actually physically super demanding, and you've got to you've got to really pace yourself. Last year we had a Schubert festival, so uh, those words. Definitely struck fear into all the string players' hearts because they knew that first of all, uh, Schubert is string heavy, so there would be a lot of a lot of string players. We'd, we'd be playing quite a bit, and um, as a lot of people know, Schubert is long, and he likes to go through a lot of different keys. What was the? I forget what, what reviewer or scholar always used the phrase "heavenly lengths" for Schubert. Ah, uh, I already uh, scared away a portion of the audience at last year's Schubert Chamber concert in which we played the Rosamunda and the Schubert Octet. And I was asked, probably the last time they'll ask me to do this, I introduced the concert. Oh, that's right. You actually got up on stage yeah, was, before the concert. Yeah, it was the Akiko show. You know, I introduced the, the concert and I played both pieces and I started off by telling them they were going to be there a long time. Did anybody run out? I didn't notice, but probably after I left the stage, they took the chance to... Sprint out the door. Well, because you do have to tell them where the exits That's are, right? That's true. They, they probably they probably really took note of that because I told them how long it was going to be. I don't know <laughs> why I really I dwelled on it. Well, my point was that, and, and maybe this is this sort of came back to you know playing a piece that you didn't 
originally love. And I'm ashamed to admit that I didn't love the Schubert Octet when I first listened to it. I thought this thing is long. It's yeah, um, falling asleep. You know, how is the audience going to make it? <laughs> I'm a musician and I can barely keep paying attention to what's happening. And uh, that's embarrassing because it actually is a great piece. And, and during the course of playing it, I developed kind of an attachment to it. And I think now it's... And, and, and ditto for the Rosamunda. I think I was really kind of dreading playing it because it's it's very difficult. I think Schubert chamber music is tough. Chamber, Schubert music it is hard, all of it. And um, maybe for slightly different reasons. The symphonies are, are really tough on your arm, on your shoulder. You start feeling like you got punched in the top of your shoulder. <laughs> um, Schubert fantasy is one of the hardest pieces for for violin, certainly. And then the Schubert chamber music, just, you know, it's it's tough to keep that um, sort of serenity and clarity and, and everything. So anyway, I got off a little bit of a tangent here when you said Schubert Festival. Or, <laughs> but that, that is, it's one of those things that it come, came at the end of our season last year and, and everyone was just thinking Schubert 9 is probably going to actually kill us. Yeah, that's tough when you're looking a week or two ahead and you can already feel feel the pain. Schubert 9 probably is one of the worst for actual physical pain. Yep, I agree. I remember that from my first times playing it in school, then in Chicago and here. Still a great piece. But it's a, it's yeah, it's actually one of my favorite pieces, but as uh, as our music director says here sometimes suffering is part of the pleasure. That's definitely true of Schubert 9, I would say. Sometimes we just suffer, but Schubert 9 there's equal parts pleasure and pain. Then, but the music then changes every week. So if you've got something that's killing you, at least you know it's going to be over just, in a just week. Just four and, performances, just right. Four hours of your life that you'll be playing. Schubert. Well, and it is nice. It's nice to repeat. You know, when in school, and certainly when I do outside performances, it's always a one-off. You know, you get one chance to play things, and uh, as soon as I joined a professional orchestra yeah you know I played my first concert and I was like wow this is amazing and you know next day I came back and like wow I've got to kind of get my energy up for this all over again and then I yeah I started realizing that's an opportunity to get to know the piece better try different things even though it's not always up to me what we try since there is a conductor and that can be hard I think you would like to do different things on a personal level yeah well and some conductors do and which is yeah well, I guess we'll do exactly a whole episode about our favorite conductors but um oh yeah with Barenboim I think one of our favorite things is that we always felt that we had to pay attention because things changed mm-hmm. constantly and unpredictably but really in a very musically satisfying way yeah well so that made it worth the repeats and we've, we've played with conductors some some great and some really bad that do things in the same way every every time too either the same great way or the same bad way. Um, but that was the, the fact that the music changed every week was the, that was the biggest adjustment for me joining a professional orchestra after coming out of school, even though we both went to conservatories, uh, you know, Juilliard and Curtis, we got to live with the music for quite a while there. And yeah, when I first joined a professional orchestra, the, the fact that there were three or four new pieces every week just killed me. And then, you know, my first, a few months in Chicago were during the summer season where it's three programs a week. So you're looking at 10 to 12 or 15 pieces. Yeah, I think since you started as a principal player too, that was probably even more pronounced for you. Right, in in St. Paul, 
I was principal second. And yeah, that was now there. I don't think I took the responsibility seriously enough. I mean, if I had, I realized how much was going to go into being principal, I would have needed to do my work a lot further in advance. Um, as it was, I was scrambling a lot to, to learn what we had, but in a sense that was easier music to put together because it was a chamber orchestra. So fewer parts, sort of not easy music, but just not as many moving parts. I remember, it's funny, I don't have a clear memory of my first months at work. I just, I, I was so excited and I'd just gotten my driver's license. I was thinking I was just focusing on not getting killed on the way to work. Yeah, that's a big to the deal Hollywood out Bowl. here. Well, your first job was here in LA. <laughs> yeah, and I had it started at the Hollywood Bowl, so I had to drive from Pasadena to Hollywood. And uh, I would try to stay in the right lane as much as I could. Which is in stark <laughs> contrast to my current driving style. Um, but so that was a little bit of an exciting blur. Um, but I do remember the first time I played Daphnis and Chloe, Ravel's Daphnis and Chloe, suite number two. And um, you sit down now in an orchestra, professional orchestra, and it's like, you know, people who've been there just a few years, it's like they just, it's like almost like it's choreographed in their limbs. Like they just, they, they know exactly, even the page turns, I feel like in Daphnis after a few years, you just, they're just ingrained in your brain. Like, yeah. this is, you know, like, cause there's just inside outside. And so, you know, you have to rapidly turn the page and then, you know, or your, or the outside player is going to turn this page because you've got something on the inside. And, but at the time I'd never played it. And it was like, it was like, learning how to drive again or something like you see people making left turns you're like my god how are they not getting killed yeah. and that's how it felt playing Daphnis and I remember I was sitting with Stacy Wetzel she I think she could sense my deer in the headlights sort of demeanor and she was like this orchestra knows Daphnis really well just don't worry just pick a line and play it <laughs> because I, I think I was even just trying to figure out which line I was playing was too much so uh so yeah I, I do remember that and it, I look back and I, I laugh and think ha ha now I really know deafness. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we had a colleague in Chicago, a violinist, who, yeah, she would always use that line, right? Uh, I know this one, or we know this one. You know, open the, the folder for that week, like, oh, what are we playing this? Oh, I know this one. Confidently, right? Well. And now and we're there. Now you know, I, I, yeah, I, I get it. I, I, I open the music and I, I say, hey, I know this one. <laughs> or sometimes I do not know this one. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would say here in LA, we play, I, I mean, I think it's pretty well established. LA plays more brand new music than just about any other big orchestra. Um, so we're, yeah, we're never able to just coast um, as far as, yeah, we've, we've got to learn things in advance here. And then as, I mean, as far as how we got here, you know, with the auditions we took, uh, so many of you've written in very interested in the audition process and, and what that's been like for us and wins and losses, ups and downs and how we prepare. And certainly we're going to talk in detail about that in, in future episodes. But, you know, each of us has taken a number of auditions and, you know, I don't think we'd have kept doing it if we didn't find some success, but it's, there's just, there's no way to always step right with the auditions. And I think one of the nice things for us now is being able to be on the other side and to, to listen to auditions that's sure. given me so much I'm sure that's a nice thing but yeah I mean. well it, it it is really tough I mean it's I think it's always tougher to be a candidate sure um than to be on the committee but committee is hard work too just to keep your ears fresh and it's definitely taught me a lot about how to prepare myself to play auditions and I think the empathy you have for the 
person on the other side of it. Oh yeah, I've been there so many times. You just sometimes I just my stomach is a knot sometimes sitting there in that committee. Oh yeah, you know, and and that's a good thing to remember when you are taking an audition that the people on the other side they're they're human and they're they want you to do well and they're they're feeling nervous too because they're they know what it's like. Yeah, that was a big shock for me. I mean, the the very first audition I ever listened to as a professional, I I couldn't believe it. I, I it struck me. Yeah, I really want every player here to do well. Like at the start of every candidate's audition, it's like, yeah, I really want them to play great. And that was opposite how I assumed the committee members felt. I remember taking my first audition in Philadelphia and I just, I had a pretty clear picture of how everyone looked on the other side of the screen. And I just knew they all hated me before I played a note. Mm, maybe. Yeah, that's true. Maybe, <laughs> some it of happens. them, maybe. I, actually, I did, that would that would have been giving me too much credit because I'm pretty sure they didn't at all know or care who I was. So, <laughs> well, auditions are a, a fun and <laughs> amazing and frustrating topic, but um, that's something I know that a lot of you want to hear about, and we'll, we will definitely not disappoint. Well, let's you know before we before we wrap up this first episode. Part of the reason we're partners for life, or I guess one of the <laughs> the tangible indicators of that is the fact that we have three little kids at home. Somebody's looking after them. It's not us right now. But yeah, we have a, at this point, we've got a four-year-old daughter and then the twin boy and girls who are two. It's a special challenge. And um, and I guess we'll get we'll talk more about how, how we've been able to, to keep working and hopefully getting stronger as players with not a whole lot of time. Yeah, and you mentioned that is a great benefit of being in an orchestra is that you can you can plan your life, you can plan childcare and activities. Yeah, although the children don't always stick to their plans. So. Yeah, they're not. <laughs> they're the ones who are... They don't have the union rules. Definitely the variable. <laughs> uh, yeah, no union rules about how many times a night they wake up. Yeah. Um, although uh, they're they're getting to the point now where it's, it's definitely easier, but um, since I got to Los Angeles, I've managed to to sit in higher chairs and that's only because of of Nathan being such a supportive partner and a great father and he's helped me you know have all the practice time I wanted when it was necessary because he's totally willing to cook dinner and watch all the kids all three kids at the same time and at a time when they were not as easy even as they are now so we also forced them to sleep on a schedule which that's, that's <laughs> some, a whole, some that people is, may be interested we will talk in that, about some that. not but that be, I, I it would not have worked if they didn't nap yeah well because yeah when when you were preparing for auditions with the kids or when I was our practice times were basically the hour and a half or two hours that they might nap assuming that happened and then I think anybody you know, who night after they went to bed anybody who has kids knows that you have to get your work done and when the opportunity presents itself. So that's just a given. Yeah. And that's been, that, honestly, that's been a plus too. just learning how to, I used to you know, whine and complain, oh, I don't have a two hour block now to practice. I can't get anything done. It's like, no, you got half an hour. So get something done, learn a page. Or, you know, the good old, hey, I've got four hours. I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to be on my phone for a little bit. Or gonna, uh-huh. I'm going to read this book for a few minutes that I've read like, you know, 10 times already. Uh-huh. Just just to just to relax into it. You know, there's no more of that. You just got to kids are asleep. You run up there, you start playing as soon as you can. And so that's it's that's been a positive, I think, for sure. 
yeah well they've definitely taught us some some hard lessons and uh now our four-year-old has just started violin and um that's something that many of you have written in about as well teaching children raising musical children so obviously on a lot of that i have no idea because i don't know if our kids are going to be musical um but we will certainly see how that goes got her started in the suzuki program out here and she's liking it for the most part so far yeah i i teach uh, a good bit as any of you know who have been to my website natesviolin.com um i love teaching that's what i've spent probably most of my time thinking about is the mechanisms of practicing and teaching you know those really go hand in hand whether it's um preparing myself for auditions or you know preparing and coaching others for auditions or just how to get the most done in the least time you've had to think about that so much too no I think that that's that's an area where you really diverge and unfortunately well we prepare in different ways which oh right I very different I think that you are such an expert at at having thought through things in a very efficient way so that you don't waste any time when you practice um I wish that I could say that I don't waste time when I practice, but I, I think my my style is much more trial and error, which is not great. I mean, I, I would definitely say that's the, the worst of the two methods. I mean, for obvious reasons, for time reasons, but also for when you're performing and you've done a lot of trial and error, when you've done a lot of error, <laughs> the <laughs> error part of it is, is hanging in your brain somewhere. So it's, it's better not to do trial and error, but that, that's unfortunately what I do and I haven't changed it. Well, we'll see. Actually, I have a lot of questions for you in in uh, some upcoming episodes about your style because, uh, yeah, stuff I've meant to ask you and this uh, show will be a great chance to do it. <laughs> but, Find um, out things about each other. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> have an argument on, on the podcast. Uh, that's what people want to see. <laughs> um, and I, ha- I have to thank, you know, those of you who have been readers and watchers uh, over these years that I've put articles and, and videos up you know, your feedback and your guidance about what's worked for you, what's been helpful is really, I mean, that that's what's inspired me to put these things out there and to, to keep trying new things and, and reporting what works for me. And one of the biggest lessons I've learned is that it's, yeah, you're never too old. It's never too late to get better, to do things in a better way that's going to bring you results more quickly. So if you haven't been to natesviolin.com, to see that and if you're interested in how all those things work on the violin and being part of that conversation head over there yeah do you have anything to add before we close out episode one no (laughs) no nothing at all you want to practice for this uh clarinet quintet that's right i'm actually surprisingly tense because i don't (laughs) want to mess up martin frost's concert (laughs) okay he is the star he's going to be our soloist for this upcoming week at the philharmonic and sometimes they'll have the the guest star uh, play some chamber music too and we're we're happy to be included in that so we are well this has been lots of fun and uh i really appreciate you listening in and if there's one thing you can do for us it would be to go to itunes and leave a rating for the show and even better if you can find just a minute to do it a review because every one of those ratings and reviews helps other people, other musicians, other symphony lovers, maybe they're violinists, maybe they're not, but it helps those folks find our show and be part of this adventure too. And 
um, if you want to do that, or even if you don't want to do that, but you'd like to suggest some future topics for us, go to standpartnersforlife.com and you can write in and let us know how you like what you've heard and what you want us to talk about coming up. So thanks for listening to episode one of Stand Partners for Life. We'll see you for the next episode.